You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network, produced at 3CR Community Radio on Wurundjeri Country. Hello, you're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network with Idwin Jeffrey. This week, we're talking about nuclear waste. According to a 2021 national inventory, Australia has 13,287 cubic metres of low-level radioactive waste. That volume is more than five standard Olympic swimming pools. We also have approximately two Olympic swimming pools worth of intermediate-level radioactive waste. So the question begs what to do with all of this waste and how to do it safely. Today on Earth Matters, we're going to be looking at two parts of the story. Firstly, we'll be looking at the recent success of the Bungala people in South Australia, who have just won a court appeal to prevent a nuclear waste facility from being built on their land. It's an amazing case, and we'll be digging into the details. We'll also be chatting with Ian Lowe, an Emetrius professor from the School of Environment and Science at Griffith University. We'll be discussing the court case as well as nuclear energy and waste in Australia and what can be done with community consultation to ensure that the mistakes brought out in the Bangalara court case aren't repeated in future. But first, what is this court case? Let's give a bit of background. In 2021, then-Minister for Resources Keith Pitt declared a former farming property known as Napandi near the town of Kimber in South Australia, as a proposed site for a nuclear waste facility. The facility aimed to act as temporary storage for nuclear medical waste that's currently held in an existing facility in Lucas Heights in New South Wales. However, the proposal was rejected earlier this month in federal court as the judge upheld a complaint made by a traditional owner group, the Bangala people, saying that the proposal had been made with apprehended bias and prejudgment by the former coalition's resource minister. To hear the case in their own words, here is a couple of members from the Bangala traditional owner group discussing the challenge. And warning, there is swearing in the following broadcast. The Bangala people sought independent electoral commission so that we could have our say regarding waste facility dump on our land. We voted unanimously no. We did not want that rubbish, that poison on our country. The reason why the Bangala people sought an independent electoral commission was we were actually excluded from the community vote. That's right, our government excluded us from the vote on our own country. We have native title over this country. We've spent the past 25 years fighting for that native title. And now we don't have a say, that's not right. We should have been one of the first people besides the residents of Kimber to uh, be in on that vote because it's our country. Simple as that. That's white man's law for you. They're just two-faced bastards. It's all wrong. It's not the way that governments should be working. They should be working with our people, for our people, not against. Nuclear waste in our region is disgusting. It should not be allowed. I am very, very angry with Minister Pitt. We, the Bangla people, 
did not have a say on what was happening. It sucks. Nepambi is in the middle of the food bowl of South Australia, and that's where they want to dump the nuclear waste. So how do all of you South Australians feel about that? Hell, how do all of you Australians feel about that? The waste from Lucas Heights, they want to bring it to South Australia and put it in our beautiful country, your beautiful country. Why not leave it there? Why put it anywhere else in the country? Let's leave it at Lucas Heights. The radioactive nuclear waste dump going ahead is a real shit of a thing that the bloody federal government has done to us. You know, that's like being bullied again. If you were to put Kimber vote as well as Bungalow vote together, it would have been 43.7%. The minister said it would never put it anywhere about broad community support. How do you say that is broad community support? And the government wouldn't let us on the site to do a heritage survey, and yet they say they've done their heritage survey. We haven't done no heritage survey. We were excluded. We were not told we cannot go on that country to do a survey. The government has gone around this all the wrong way. There's been no consultation with us Bungalow people, the traditional owners of this country. They, they, they haven't done anything right from the get-go. They're just, again, stating where they want things and putting it where they want to. Intermediate waste is going to start travelling to that facility across roads, across Australia, through suburbs, and then it's going to sit on bungalow country. What happens if that stuff leaches? It will poison the water, will poison the plants, the animals, and it'll poison us. It's not uh, one generation that's going to cop this. It's going to be generation after generation after generation. Yours, mine... All of our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, are going to be affected by this. We don't need this in our country. Is it safe? No, it's not safe. Let it stay in Lucas Heights, where it's manufactured. We're still class of second-class citizens, still class of foreign fauna. We're here. We're not going to lay back and let you just destroy our country. We're going to stand up and fight and protect and reserve what country we have left. It's our right. It's our culture. It's our connection to country. It's our Mother Earth. Iridi Wundi, keep it in the ground or keep it at Lucas Heights. We don't want it on Bungalow Country. That was Jonas Dare, Roddy Wingfield, Harry Dare, Stephen Atkinson, Les Taylor and Joseph Bilney from the Bungala Traditional Owners Group who led the court challenge. We'll be talking more now about their success in court with Professor Ian Lowe as well as discussing nuclear waste and storage in Australia more generally. So today on Earth Matters, we're looking at a proposal for a nuclear waste facility in Kimber. Now, a bit of background on this. The proposal was first raised in 2021 by then resource ministers at the time, Keith Pitt. However, a court case uh, earlier this month has rejected the proposed facility, and we're going to explore a couple of the reasons why. To do so, we have uh, Professor Ian Lowe, who wrote a conversation about this issue for The Conversation. Um, Ian, in your article, you dubbed the proposal for the waste facility a decide-and-defend model can you unpack for us what you mean by, uh, by, this, by the decide and defend model, um, especially in relation to environmental proposals? 
Uh, absolutely. There's a long history of governments getting this wrong uh, that's been tried in the UK and the USA and both uh, still don't have uh, any process for managing radioactive waste because every time they've identified a possible location, the local community has rallied around and uh, objected and the government's been forced to back away. In the case of Australia, the Howard government tried 20 years ago to locate a radioactive waste storage facility near Woomera in South Australia and the local community, the local Indigenous people and the state government of the time uh, objected and the proposal was withdrawn. Ten years ago, uh, they tried to locate it near Muckety Station in the Northern Territory and again the local community objected and most recently they deliberately excluded the Indigenous people from consultation about possibly locating it near Kimber in South Australia and the Federal Court said that it's not appropriate to locate something as contentious as a radioactive waste storage facility on the land of the traditional owners uh, without them giving uh, well-informed consent. And uh, what I said in the article was that the decide and defend model where a government decides to locate something as contentious as radioactive waste storage in a particular location will always generate local objections. And the only model that has worked around the world is the model in Finland where the government involved the community in discussing uh, the problem of managing radioactive waste, involved the community in choosing a location, and they're now going ahead and constructing a facility for the long-term storage of their radioactive waste. We'll dig into Finland because I'm interested that that was actually a successful case study in a moment. But I wanted to talk about this sort of this evaluation process because it sounds like the way we judge the viability of a nuclear, you know, waste facility is very based in science, based in geography, not based in sort of community focus. Uh, do you think we need to reevaluate how we approach this? That, that's absolutely right, because uh, it's not just a technical issue, it's a social issue. That, uh, and in particular, now that we're sensitive to the rights of Indigenous people, uh, so, citing something as contentious as the long-term management of radioactive waste uh, on the land of a particular group of traditional owners will always be a problem if they're not uh, involved in the decision-making process and give their consent. And we need to recognise that the Indigenous people are particularly sensitive to nuclear issues because back in the 1950s, the Menzies government allowed the British to test their nuclear weapons and land in South Australia and in Western Australia as well. And uh, in the particular case of South Australia, local Indigenous people suffered serious health impacts. They weren't consulted. Uh, the government just allowed the British to test the weapons there and they suffered the consequences. So there will need to be a long process of proper engagement with Indigenous people to get their consent to locating a radioactive waste storage facility on their land. Just in terms of the judgment, um, Charles, Charles, sorry, Justice Charlesworth found that the proposal was uh, affected by apprehended bias um, from arising from apparent prejudgment on the behalf of Keith Pitt. 
uh, feeding into this sort of defi- decide and defend model, can you tell us a little bit about what this what this ruling is about apprehended bias and its significance in the judgment? Well, basically, uh, the, uh, the the process by which the Commonwealth government uh, decided to uh, locate the radioactive waste storage facility at Kimber did involve discussion with. Uh, some of the local landowners, but the process deliberately excluded from discussion the local Indigenous people. And the court, I think, correctly said that uh, that was uh, a conscious decision, presumably because the government expected that the local Indigenous people would be hostile. So they made a point of not asking them what they thought. And that meant that the whole process was flawed. And given the history, there's always going to be objections from local Indigenous people if they're not properly informed and properly consulted. Um, Getting on to this issue of, you know, the successful case study of Finland, what was it that Finland did or the steps they took to properly engage with community around, as you said, such a sensitive issue of nuclear waste facility and storage? Well, uh, firstly, they uh, said to the community quite reasonably that uh, the governments governments previously having decided to build and operate nuclear power stations meant that they had a problem of managing the resulting radioactive waste. Uh, And secondly, they discussed with the community as a whole Uh, what might be an appropriate compensation for whichever local community agreed to uh, take responsibility of managing the whole nation's radioactive waste. Uh, And they then uh, invited expressions of interest from local communities. They had discussion with local communities and finally got agreement in one area uh, that uh, that community would be happy to host the radioactive waste storage facility in return for some uh, financial and other compensation from the government. And everyone agreed that was a reasonable process and uh, the waste storage facility is now being constructed and is likely to be operational by the end of this year. It's it's a model of how to go about it, involving the community and uh, finding after discussion uh, an area where people are happy to have the facility in return for some compensation for taking on that responsibility on behalf of the whole nation. And if if we're serious about managing radioactive waste, and we should be because we have a problem, um, we need to go through that sort of process of involving the community and finding a location where the local community are happy to uh, manage the radioactive waste in return for some compensation from the rest of the community. I wanted to discuss this waste issue a little bit more because it's sort of this ever-present elephant in the room that no one wants to necessarily talk about but we have to deal with. Um, has there, you know, what what does this waste problem look like in Australia and has there been any successful case studies that we can draw from in, like, good management of nuclear facilities or nuclear waste? 
Well, um, the, the main problem historically in Australia has been so-called low-level radioactive waste. And this is uh, comparatively benign. Uh, I mean, if you store low-level waste under a few metres of earth, the radiation at the ground, uh, at the surface, is not much above the background that we're all exposed to. So managing it is, in technical terms, comparatively easy, um, provided that the community has been happy to, to take on that responsibility. We now have uh, two more serious issues. The first is that the uh, Lucas Heights Research Reactor, uh, which is involved in uh, nuclear research and the production of um, isotopes mainly for use in, in uh, medicine uh, is producing so-called intermediate level waste which uh, needs to be uh, stored with uh, much more secure protection of the community. You need uh, much better uh, protection to reduce the radiation from that waste because it's much nastier and that means you probably need an underground storage facility, deep underground in uh, stable geological layers. Uh, the third issue, which has had very little discussion, is that the Morrison government's uh, AUKUS agreement to acquire nuclear submarines will involve us in managing very nasty radioactive waste at the end of the life of those nuclear submarines. And I've pointed out that uh, the US and the UK have been using nuclear submarines for 60 to 70 years, and neither has yet uh, solved the problem of how you manage the very intractable radioactive waste from those nuclear submarines. In both those cases, the UK and the USA, the uh, used reactors from the nuclear submarines are simply being stored while the government tries to figure out what to do with it. And uh, I think the community should be very concerned that um, the Morrison government has committed us to solving a problem that neither the UK nor the US has yet solved after decades of experience. Also, just you sort of have picked up on the language where you say, you know, so-called low-level radiation or... or relatively easy to store. Do you think there's a problem with the language around this issue, almost sort of sanitising or, or confusing the public around around sort of like, you know, the risks involved or, or the, yeah, the, dif the different aspects of it? Well, there is a problem because uh, uh, there hasn't been a proper uh, risk assessment. I remember saying when, the first proposal was uh, being discussed in South Australia 20 years ago that the, the whole idea of a centralised storage for radioactive waste uh, assumes that there are risks involved in leaving radioactive waste where it is now at Lucas Heights and in hospitals and university laboratories. Um, so it's better to transport those wastes to a centralised site and, of course, there are risks in transporting radioactive waste from where it is to wherever that centralised storage is. So I said there needs to be at least a crude back-of-the-envelope calculation comparing the risks of transporting the waste from where it is to the waste repository 
with the risks of leaving it where it is. And in the particular case of the intermediate level waste, uh, it's now in a secure temporary storage at Lucas Heights. And there's no obvious reason that it makes sense to involve the transport risks of moving it from there to another temporary site, which is what Kimber was going to be uh, before its final disposal. And in the case of the intermediate level waste, I think it's very clear that the most sensible approach is to leave it in the secure temporary storage at Lucas Heights until we have developed with community agreement uh, a storage site for its long-term management. Can I ask, what's the political resistance to to leaving it, as you said, in, in this Lucas Heights and waiting, you know, until we have a, a thing? What's the political momentum behind it or argument? Um, well, I, I suppose it's that uh, when Lucas Heights was originally constructed as a research reactor in the 1950s, it was in the bush. It was well outside the Sydney suburbs. And I can remember uh, scientists uh, getting together, sharing cars to get to research seminars at Lucas Heights because it was way out in the bush and there was no public transport. Now, what's happened since then is that the suburbs have grown up around it. Um, and it's probably fair to say that people have moved there knowing that Lucas Heights was there. So uh, you know, in the same way as people have um, uh, built houses uh, underneath the, the flight path of airports, they knew the airport was there when they moved there, so they'd sort of accepted it. Uh, and uh, in the case of Lucas Heights, the people who've moved there moved there knowing Lucas Heights was there, so there is, in a sense, community acceptance of whatever risk there is in the temporary storage there. And that means you don't have to negotiate a new arrangement with the community. You have an existing arrangement. So uh, I, I can't see why you would want to move it to a, another temporary store. I can see why you might want to move it to a properly engineered long-term facility, but uh, I can't see why it makes sense to move it to another temporary store. You've been on record saying you previously supported nuclear energy, but you've become, uh, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but disillusioned with it, even writing a book called um, The Long Half-Life. Can you tell us a little bit about what your issues are with nuclear and um, Australia? Sure. I mean, when I was young, uh, the choice was between uh, nuclear uh, electricity and burning coal. And uh, in the short term, uh, nuclear energy is certainly much cleaner than burning coal. I mean, before we knew about climate change, uh, we knew that there was very serious pollution of air and waterways from burning millions of tonnes of coal to generate our electricity. And so I was, uh, as a young scientist, quite enthusiastic about nuclear energy. Uh, in the 1970s, there started to emerge uh, questions about the economics of nuclear and uh, the history of nuclear energy, which is that it was a spin-off of the nuclear weapons program, meant that the economics had always been fudged by uh, cross-subsidies from the facilities that were being used to produce fissile material for nuclear weapons. And so then when the nuclear energy industry started in the US and the UK, there were those uh, cross-subsidies that really fudged the economics and made it look more attractive than it was. 
Uh, also in the 1970s, people started to question whether we had a responsible plan for the long-term management of radioactive waste. Uh, and uh, various inquiries like the uh, Flowers Report in the UK in 1977 said that it would be irresponsible to expand nuclear energy uh, uh, if we hadn't yet developed a responsible management plan for the long-lived radioactive waste that will ensue. Um, when Barry Brook and I wrote uh, a so-called flip book, a book with two front covers rather than a back cover, giving the case for and against nuclear energy in Australia um, uh, nearly 15 years ago, at that time, um, nuclear electricity was cheaper than the renewables like solar and wind. And so Barry Brook argued that if we were serious about slowing down climate change, it was more cost-effective to build nuclear power stations in Australia than to expand solar and wind. And that was true uh, 15 years ago. But today it's no longer the case. Um, the global average prices of electricity from solar and wind are now around $0.04 cents a kilowatt hour and from nuclear is around $0.16 cents a kilowatt hour. So it's not just a bit more expensive, it's four times the price. Uh, the other issue is the time scale. The Howard government set up an inquiry into nuclear electricity chaired by Dr. Zygotkowski, and their report in 2006 said it would take at least 10 years and possibly 15 to build one nuclear reactor in Australia which would give about 5% of our electricity. And the point I made is that in 15 years, we could build enough solar and wind to power Australia completely with renewables. And if we're serious about climate change, then we need, really need to decarbonise our electricity system rapidly. And that means nuclear just isn't either a timely or a cost-effective response compared with large solar farms and wind turbines. That was Professor Ian Lowe discussing the Bungala court case as well as nuclear energy and nuclear waste in Australia. I will include his conversation article in today's rundown, but you can also find out more about him at Griffith University. We will also aim to speak with the Bangala people about this success in court. For more information on the group, you can head to their website at www.bangalantbc.com.au. Bangala is spelled B-A-R-N-G-A-R-L-A, Bangala. The link for the video and voices we heard earlier from the traditional owner group will also be available in today's rundown. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Radio Network for all their hard work in broadcasting today's episode and the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their generous financial support. Earth Matters is produced at 3CR Community Radio in Fitzroy, Melbourne, and we can be contacted at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com. That's all for now, but tune in next week for more environmental and social justice stories. Thank you.